good day to all of you. I'm Roger Edrington, and I have the dubious privilege of speaking for the Sunday after the election. It's Wednesday now, so we don't even know who the winner is yet. But some of you, I realize, may be angry or disgruntled because your candidate or your proposition didn't win, and you're sure that our country is headed to hell in a handbasket. And some of you are elated because your candidate was elected and you're full of hope for our country. So I realize we have a very mixed congregation, but probably most of us are just glad that the election is over. As I heard some radio commentators say a long time ago, so it doesn't relate to this election particularly, but he said the good thing about the day after the election is that half of those bumps didn't get elected. Now, everybody has opinions, and some of us have opinions about everything. Some of us have opinions about everybody. And our opinions, like our beliefs, are important, some more important than others. You may think that the best color in the world is green. Well, I think that the best color is blue. Most of us are not likely to argue about that particular opinion. But nearly everybody has opinion about politics these days. And those opinions climb up higher on the scale of importance. And I'm sure some of us have argued with family and friends over these issues. And we're amazed at how much we disagree with each other, how, how divided we are, and sometimes even in the same family or the same group, the same way that you were raised, and you disagree. Opinions come from the things we value and also from the things we prefer. They're formed from who we trust. They stem from our personality, our experience, our parenting, our friends, and and perhaps that inborn something that just says, this is the way it should be, and that is not the way it should be. And some of us may be just opinionated. (laughs) That is, we don't let the truth affect our opinions. Maybe you watch Fox News or CNN all the time, and so you only get your information from one particular source. But as followers of Jesus, we need to make sure that we filter our political opinions through our Christian faith, rather than filter our Christian faith through our political opinions. Because the truth is, if you're a Republican, you can find verses in the Bible that agree with some issues in the Republican stance. And if you're a Democrat, you can find verses in the Bible that support your stance there. And everybody seems to want Jesus on their side. But the truth is that Jesus didn't side with people on either side. As Tony Evans said, Jesus didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. He came to take over our lives. In fact, Jesus intentionally chose people from different political views for his disciples. Simon was a zealot, a revolutionary who wanted to overthrow Rome and get political freedom. We could call him left-wing. Matthew was a tax collector, a businessman who had a franchise with Rome to collect taxes. We could call him right-wing. And I wonder if Simon changed his view that the Romans were the oppressors and should be challenged. Jewish lives matter. 
I wonder if Matthew changed his view that the Romans deserved to be honored as tax collectors and and respected law and order. I don't know. But I do know that Jesus molded the lives of these two individuals so that they learned to love one another. And he taught them not to divide over their political stances. And they learned that there were much more important issues than politics. They learned the new commandment to love one another as Jesus had taught them to love them. And I want to remind us that Jesus prays for us as followers of Jesus to be united, even when we disagree about opinions. And that prayer is still Jesus' unanswered prayer, found in John chapter 17. Now, deep down, we know that our unity in Christ is far more important than who we vote for. There's a classic Christian saying that's so old that it gets attributed to different early church fathers. In essentials, unity. In opinions, liberty. And in all things, love. And even after the election dust settles, we will probably still end up with different opinions. But I hope that we will always keep loving one another and respecting one another even if we believe that the other person is clearly wrong. And especially, I hope that we will remain united in our love for Christ. I hope that we can disagree politically and yet love unconditionally. Now, from a Christian point of view, we distinguish essential matters of belief about truth from opinional matters. Some things you must believe if you're going to be a Christian that Jesus is God who came to earth in flesh, that that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that salvation comes by putting your trust in Jesus alone and not by works. If you don't believe those things, you aren't really a Christian. You're, You're not a follower of Jesus. And there are other essential things as well. But there are many ideas that Christians hold strongly, but which are simply a matter of opinion. How to worship properly. How often do you pray or or read the Bible? What activities are acceptable or not acceptable? Now, the way I'm going to use opinions here, and the way I think Paul uses it in the passage that we're going to look at, is personal choices which are not essentials of faith. Now, a word of caution here. People have opinions about everything. But not everything that people have opinions about is an opinional matter in the sense that Paul means in this passage that we will read in Romans chapter 14 and 15. People have opinions about things that are absolute in Scripture and shouldn't be opinions on. And people make essentials out of ideas that should just be essentials. So it's no good ending every discussion with, well, that's my opinion and I have a right to it. Or that's just your opinion. No, no. Some things are just true. And some opinions are better than others. I think my opinions are probably better than yours. So it's fine to hold an opinion. It's how you hold your opinion that really makes the difference for followers of Jesus. This cartoon shows us that it's probably not the best way to hold your opinions. Sure, I value your opinion, 
It's so ludicrous that it makes me realize just how awesome my opinion is. Now today, I want to speak in particular about how we hold opinions in the community of faith. We're a church that wants to be transformed by Christ, a, a church full of people who, who wants to know Jesus more than anything else. And perhaps nothing will make more difference in the Christian community than how we hold our opinions. Opinions have split more churches. They've created more denominations. They've shattered more, more friendships in, in faith than our foundational beliefs have. People leave churches more often because of opinions than because of essentials. And people stay in churches often because their opinion prevailed. Now, our passage today is a long one. It's Romans chapters 14 and 15 all the way to verse 13. But I'm not going to read it all, but I hope that you will read it and check out what I'm going to say. I'm going to read uh, Romans uh, 14, just the first nine verses, but I'm going to use the message translation, and I'm going to put the NIV on the screen. You may just want to listen, or you can follow along and, and note the differences. You'll note that the, the message is, is much longer, and it's not a, a literal translation, but one that just tries to, to help us to relate to today. So chapter 14, verse 1 of Romans, welcome with open arms, fellow believers who don't see things the way you do. And don't jump all over them every time they do or say something you don't agree with, even when it seems that they're strong on opinions, but weak in the faith department. Remember, they have their own history to deal with. Treat them gently. For instance, a person who's been around for a while might well be convinced that he can eat anything on the table while another with a different background might assume that he should only be a vegetarian and eat accordingly. But since both, since both are guests at Christ's table, wouldn't it be terribly rude if they fell to criticizing what the other ate or didn't eat? God, after all, invited them both to the table. Do you have any business crossing off the guest list or interfering with God's welcome? If there are corrections to be made or manners to be learned, God can handle that without your help. Or say one person thinks that some days should be set aside as holy, and, and another thinks that each day is pretty much like any other. There are good reasons either way, so each person is free to follow the convictions of conscience. What's important in all this is that if you keep a holy day, keep it for God's sake. If you eat meat, eat it to the glory of God and thank God for prime bread. If you're a vegetarian, eat vegetables to the glory of God and thank God for broccoli. None of us are permitted to insist on our own way in these matters. It's God we are answerable to. All the way from life to death and everything in between, not each other. And that's why Jesus lived and died and then lived again, so that he could be our master across the entire range of life and death and free us from the petty tyrannies of each other. Now the NIV and more standard translations read chapter 14, verse 1, something like this. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. And at chapter 15, verse 1, 
We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So let's see if we can describe who Paul means by the believer whose faith is weak and the stronger believer. So first of all, the weaker believer or the, or the one whose faith is weak. This refers to Jewish Christians who held on to the requirements of the Mosaic law that they had observed all their life. It bothered their conscience if they didn't observe special Jewish feast days and fast days and would never eat food that was on the forbidden list or, or that had been offered to idols. Now, the stronger believer in Paul's usage is the one who has the wider range of freedom. He feels no need to observe the ceremonial and dietary aspects of the Mosaic law. And these would be mainly Gentile Christians who didn't grow up with these laws, as well as some Jewish Christians who considered the, the ceremonial laws were, were not binding on them, like Paul himself. Now, I want to make it clear that both of these groups are Christians. Both groups have divide, devoted their lives to following Jesus. And the Jewish Christians, even the so-called weaker Christians, do not believe that you must obey the law to be saved. If they did, Paul would have written a different message. He would have told them in no uncertain terms that we are saved by grace, not the law, as he told the Galatian believers in the letter to them. How we are saved is not open to opinions for followers of Jesus. Now, Paul is not saying that one group is the better Christian than the other group. You know, the, the, the strong are better than the weak in this case. No, no. They just have different opinions about how to live out their faith. And though Paul calls the group, uh, one group, he calls them weak in faith, he doesn't mean that their faith is not real faith. Now, in our passage today, Paul has a message for both the, the weaker and the stronger believers because their controversy is disrupting the unity and the proper functioning of the body of Christ. Neither the weak nor the strong is dealing with this issue in the right way. And I find that this seems to be a pretty normal pattern when there's a controversy that both sides are not really dealing with it in a way that's really uh, the best way. Douglas Moo actually gives us the most likely historical situation. He writes that the weak condemned the strong for cavalierly dismissing God's law, while the strong poo-pooed the weak, looking down on them for clinging to the old ways when the new had already come. And Paul sides with the strong on the basic issues involved, but his main concern is to get each group to stop criticizing one another and to accept each other in a spirit of love and unity. Now, the specific issues in the Roman church are not our particular issues. Most of us don't generally have a problem with people following the ceremonial and dietary aspects of the Jewish law eating only kosher versus not eating food offered to idols. But we have our own issues that we can easily splinter into groups over. So let's look at several principles that Paul gives us about how to hold our opinions and also to keep good relationships at the same time and maintain that spirit of Christian unity. 
So here are the principles. The first one, accept the one whose faith is weak. Now, Paul mentions two examples of opinions which are causing the controversy for them. They're, they're not usually controversies for us, as I said. So the first one is eating everything versus eating only kosher. Now, you can imagine if Mr. Gentile Christian invites Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Jewish Christian to their house for dinner. And Mr. Jewish Christian, he's out there grilling the steaks on the barbecue grill, and he loves them very rare, and he wants to bring it in, and he puts it on the plate of Mr. and Mrs. Jewish Christian, and he puts a strip of bacon over the top just to make that really flavorful. And he says to Mr. and Mrs. Jewish Christian, you know, this is really fresh meat. I just bought it down in the market, and they said that it was offered to the god Eros. And I just laughed. And I thank God because I used to worship at that temple, but now I know that there's no God but the true God. Isn't that right, Mr. and Mrs. Jewish Christian? Well, he had all the best intentions in the world and using his freedom in Christ. But you can imagine the look on the faces of Mr. and Mrs. Jewish Christian. It was instilled in a Jew not to eat meat that wasn't properly bled. And bacon? And how could anyone eat meat that was offered to idols? And before long, there would be huffs and puffs and strong words hurled at each other, asking, how can you be a Christian if you do that? And friendship and fellowship is broken, and there's a lot of tension next Sunday after church when the word has passed around and each group has put their own spin on the on this does that sound familiar now the other problem is one day is sacred versus all days are alike the jews were commanded to observe three feasts a year with with special foods and activities while the gentiles didn't see those days as particularly special. But they felt that every day was a gift from God, and they just went on with life as usual. Paul first addresses the so-called strong Christians, and he tells them that they should accept those who have special ways of worshiping God. And even if you see them as failings, bear with them and just listen to them. You can't just run over them and, and discount their opinion. So seriously held convictions about practices that help you in your spiritual life are good. What is bad is when one group says a particular practice not prescribed by God is essential, while the other group says if you have real faith, you won't do this practice at all. Now, having strong opinions is not the same as being a strong Christian. Being strong-willed is not the same as being a strong believer. It may be just being bullheaded, a bullheaded Christian. So Paul says it's okay to have your own opinions and, and to follow them. Our second point is be fully convinced in your own mind about your opinions. Make sure it's a good conviction that actually helps you follow the faith. So live out your chosen opinion to the Lord in trust, in faith. If you eat 
Give thanks to the Lord. If you choose not to eat something, give thanks for what you have and, and abstain because of the Lord. It's the reason behind the practice that makes the difference. He also says, keep your opinions to yourself, between yourself and God. Because matters of opinion, when, when practiced in quiet relationship with God, have great power to help us grow and express our faith. But when they're argued about in public and paraded before others, they have immense power for destruction. Now, sometimes Christian peer group is strong. And so we may press people into breaking their commitments to God. And by doing that, we, we push them to go against something they truly believe. And here's what Paul writes about that in, in verse 23 of chapter 14. But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And everything that doesn't come from faith is sin. We want to have true trust in God when we do our practices. So you must follow your convictions and not bow to the pressure of others to participate in something that, that you hold is wrong. Now let's take me, for example. I was raised in a home where to drink alcohol of any kind, in any quantity, at any time, is sin. And as far as I knew, this was the only way that a Christian should live. But later, I found true Christians with quite different opinions on the matter. And I discovered that the Bible didn't really say that alcohol is absolutely always wrong. Now, honestly, I wish it did, because I've seen alcohol and other substances control the lives of so many people in our society. I can imagine that probably some of you who are watching this have been alcoholics or drug addicts or you have some other addiction and maybe you're in recovery now. Now, it is clear from Scripture that being drunk, having your behavior influenced by alcohol so that you're not clear-minded is wrong because you can't be self-controlled. You can't live out of the Spirit if you're controlled by something else. But... I still wish that Jesus had changed the wine to water instead of the water into wine. And for me, drinking alcohol is not good, so I just don't do it. I always say I've had more alcohol in Church of England communion than any other time, and that hasn't been a lot of times. But there are times when I've thought, Look, Roger, you're, you're the weaker brother on this issue. Why don't you just break your scruples? But I don't, because for me, it would break my conscience, and, and my action would not come out of faith, but it would just come out of, of pressure. So I hold this view as an opinion, not an absolute. I think I have good reasons for my opinion, and I wish that others would hold that opinion, but I can't make it binding on others. And I will not force the Bible to say what I would like it to say. And I hope that you won't force the Bible to say what you would like it to say and to agree with your opinions either. Now, thirdly, Paul tells us strongly that there are some things we must avoid in the community. And the first thing that he says is stop passing judgment on your brothers and sisters. He doesn't say don't pass judgment. He says stop it. 
It's already happening in their community. And it can easily happen in our community, too. And it does all too often. Not only no ultimate judging, he says, but also no looking down on your brothers and your sisters. You're not a better Christian than the other person who has a a different opinion. This brother or sister likes louder, edgy music in worship, and you like hymns. So what? Yet, he says, do not put a stumbling block in your brother or sister's way. Sometimes engaging our freedom is, is not helpful to others. There are things we choose not to do or to do for the sake of another person. It's not that the activity is wrong in itself, but it's not loving. And it could be that it's an obstacle. The Greek word there is scandalon. It's a, it's a scandal that it might actually cause a believer to break their own conscience or even lose their trust in Jesus. We don't want things that will move people backward. And so it's not just something that might be offensive that we're talking about here, but an action which might block someone's way to following Jesus. So every believer must be sensitive in how they use their freedom in Christ. He also says, don't be out to please yourself first. This is really important. Christianity is about letting go of some of our freedom to help other people in the journey. Just like Jesus did, he was God on earth, but he gave up some of those God qualities and acting on those God qualities to use because he identified with others and he loved them. And instead of pleasing yourself first, then follow the model of Jesus. Build other people up. Don't tear them down. Jesus took insults, he took judgments on himself because he cared about us rather than just pleasing himself. Fourth point is we must be patient with the opinions of others. Well, why? Well, Paul gives some reasons in chapter 14, verses 7 through 12. He says, first of all, we're connected to the same community. We're part of the body of Christ. We're serving one another. We're not living for ourselves. He says we're also connected to the same purpose. We live and die to the Lord. Christ is who we live for. We live to serve him. Also, we stand under the same judge as the other person. So be careful when you judge somebody else as as you can easily be judged for the same thing or something different. And we stand under the same master. And Paul uses the image of slavery here and asks whether you have the right to judge somebody else's slave, somebody else's servant. And the answer is no. He's judged by his master, not you, his peer. So who do you think you are judging somebody else? Who do you think you are trying to control somebody else that you are not the master of? People like to say, you're not the boss of me, but we need to realize that our boss is Jesus Christ. And the final reason to be patient with others is because Christ accepted you. He accepted you. You or I might be tempted to to look down at another Christian. Perhaps he's not as spiritual as you are. He doesn't know as much about the Bible. She doesn't really uh, serve as much as you do. 
But remember, Jesus has accepted you right where you are, and he does the same for others. Now, here are some actions to take. Instead of just telling us to stop judging, Paul says that we must do something. We must act. We must act in love. If your brother is distressed because of what you're doing, then you may not be acting in love. Using your God-given freedom is not always acting in love. And so Paul says, don't destroy the work of God. That is the work that God has done in, in one of his people for the sake of food. Come on now. It's better not to eat meat or, or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So the strong ought to be more concerned about the body of Christ and about the individuals in it rather than their own freedom. And love is always a higher value than freedom. Now, sometimes when we wage wars with each other, we think that freedom is the highest value. I have to be me, you know, but love is always a higher value than our freedom. Now, I think that's a problem in our country, which was established on freedom. So we sometimes often, I think, value freedom more than we do about caring for others. Let me give you an opinion here. You may not agree, but I think that wearing a mask in a pandemic is an act of love for others. I may have freedom not to wear a mask in public, but I would rather love others by wearing it. So he, is, he says, stick to the essential matters of the kingdom of God. In verse 17, he says, for the kingdom of God is, is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Realize what the kingdom of God really is. It's not about those nitpicky opinions that you have. The kingdom of God is not a matter of opinion for the strong or the weak about eating or not eating or doing this particular thing. But get to the important issues because your opinions can often be just detours to cause you to miss the real thing. And think how many times you've had an argument with a family member or a friend about an opinion. You don't load the dishwasher right. You don't pick up your socks. You supported the wrong candidate. Is it worth losing a relationship to give up peace and joy just in order to win an argument? I always say, but I don't practice it at home all the time, being right is overrated. It's overrated because peace and joy and being right with God, those are much more important things. So Paul says in verse 19, make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Jesus said that the peacemakers are the blessed ones. And Paul concludes this section the same way he began. In chapter 15, verse 7, he says, accept one another just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Now, I want to put some people in boxes here and see if we can better understand. I, I know you, you don't always want to put people in a box, but, but I think this might help us understand better. First of all, what I like to call the normal, strong Christian. He may participate or not in certain activities. 
He has his own opinions and a wide range of freedom. He does all to the Lord and may participate in this action to the Lord. But he loves and doesn't want others to stumble into sin. And so he has freedom, but's willing to give up some freedoms to help others. That's the normal strong Christian. Now let's go across to the normal weaker Christian who decides that he wants to not participate. So he holds opinions about practices which are important to him or not. He does all to the Lord and chooses to abstain to the Lord in this particular case. He loves and doesn't desire to bind others with his opinions. He needs to follow his own conscience or her own conscience and not participate. So that kind of helps us to see that. Now, Paul knows that sometimes the one who is considered the weaker one can try to control the other one with his opinion. What I call the professional weaker brother can use his strong opinion and supposed weakness as a weapon to to make other people comply with his particular view. So let's put the professional weaker Christian in the view. Uh, He sees his opinions as absolutes. As some mature characteristics, perhaps has been a follower of Jesus for a long time. But he manipulates others into following his opinions by not causing me to fall. He values rules more than love. He's self-interested and instills his opinions in new and weak Christians. Several years ago, a man came to the church where I served between the services and he wanted to talk with the pastor. And so one of our our people came and got me and, and put us together. I knew I was going to be in trouble with his first question. He said, which version of the Bible do you use in this church? I told him that we generally use the New International Version, but that those of us who speak English are very fortunate because there are very many good and accurate translations of the Bible. And his reply was, well, I came to fellowship with you today, but I can't because you don't use the King James Version. And he gave me some reasons why the King James Version was the only correct version. And as he turned to leave, he gave me a sheaf of papers about the issue. Now, this man was not at church to fellowship with Christians. He was there to fellowship with Christians who had the same opinion as he does. His unity was based not on our common belief in the Bible, but on the King James Version, translated 1,600 years after Jesus. Now, I think his opinion about the King James Version as the best version is ill-advised, but I would have been happy to have fellowship with him and even have an open discussion with him about various versions of the Bible. But this man was more than just your normal weaker brother. He was a professional weaker brother, and he used his opinions to try to make everybody believe exactly like he did. Unity won't happen when people are nitpicking over opinions. Perhaps you or I have been known to judge each other over opinions. What style of music we use, whether a pastor or an elder makes the right decision about something, whether a pastor talks too much about money, A lot of issues are worth debating, but let's not get angry and divide over them. 
Now on the other side, in the other box, let's consider the professional strong believer. This person sees his opinions as absolutes, has some mature characteristics, maybe been a Christian a long time, but he flaunts his opinions as freedom, caring little for others. He values freedom more than love. He's self-interested. He instills his opinions in new and weak Christians. And you probably noticed that the attitudes of both of these professional Christians are virtually the same. They just disagree on rules and freedom. The professional strong Christian is unwilling to give up freedom. And the professional weak Christian is unwilling to give up rules. Now, God is both transforming individuals and also the community. And if we want to be a community where we're conformed not to the world but to Christ, we will have to have transformed attitudes. We'll have to renew our minds. We'll often have to adjust our opinions about what is important and what is not. Perhaps the Roman Christians wish that Paul would have just answered their controversy. Shall we eat meat or not? But Paul doesn't answer it. He simply says, welcome. Welcome the one who has a different opinion with you. That brother or sister who may be weaker in faith or stronger in faith than you. And sometimes I think we welcome somebody into our fellowship or our, our, in order to try to influence them over to our side. I know I wanted to change people to my opinion many, many times. But Paul says, welcome them. Not to change their opinion, because they are a part of the body of Christ, just like you are. Just help each other grow to follow Christ. And God wants his church to be a people who transcend any cultural, racial, political, or ethnic categories, and, and any opinions that we hold. He wants a unity based on the good news of Jesus, that, that Christ has accepted us, and we also accept others and learn to love them deeply. God doesn't try to make us all alike. He doesn't. He wants people who know how to handle their different opinions with love. And God takes our differences, our disagreements, and even what I like to call our idiot syncrasies, and he brings us to a stronger unity because of our love for Christ and one another. And I want to challenge all of us to do just that, to love one another deeply, to work toward the common good of the community and, and in here and the community out there as well. Live out your love for Jesus by accepting one another just as Jesus has accepted you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you've given each of us a mind. You've given each of us a heart. We feel and we think. And Lord, we're not all alike. And we are still the body of Christ. We have different gifts. We have different functions. We have different skills that we've learned. And I thank you for that, God. I thank you for the diversity in the church that we have people of different races, different ethnic groups, different backgrounds and parenting. And we have diff people who see things differently. But Lord, help us to stand on the essentials. And 
and help us to know that you are the God who loves us all. And I pray for anyone today who may be hearing this message who hasn't yet accepted you as their Lord. I pray that that person would understand the truth and the grace of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Blessings to all of you. May the peace of our Lord go with you as you become peaceful with the people around you. Now we'd like to spend some time together in communion. The Bible teaches that we should always do this in a worthy manner. The Apostle Paul, in his first letter to the church in Corinth, addressed several issues in concerning their conduct, including the way they were taking the Lord's Supper. He wrote in 1128, a man should examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. The important thing to realize here is that this table was intended for believers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as a man's table in his house is intended for his family, in God's house, this table is intended for his family. To take these elements without having a right relationship with Jesus is to take these in an unworthy manner. It goes on to read in verse 29 that to do so is to eat and drink judgment upon oneself. In the time it's taken me to say all this, you should know where you stand. Together this morning, we're going to take some elements and we're going to share these as brothers and sisters. What a privilege. He wrote, beginning in verse 23, For I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's share this together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, in re do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's share this cup. And Father, thank you for this special gift of spending time with you around this table. That you would count me as one of your children and given the right to call you Father will be a wonder to me for all eternity. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen.